If you have a Bible this morning, you should have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 8. We've been in Romans at Door of Hope. We're going to be in chapter 8 this morning. I know that we've, we've been in chapter 8. We're going to do a little bit of, of review. Uh, Romans chapter 8, I'm going to start reading in verse 28, and then, uh, and then I'm just going to just talk with you for a little while. So Romans, starting, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. This... This morning, I decided to do something that I don't think I'm ever going to do again. And I've been thinking about this for the last few weeks, and I actually decided, I was talking with my friend Piper about it, he knows, and, and I was talking to Pip about it. Uh, I want to give you my, my personal testimony, uh, part of it. And I immediately shy away from that. I've, I decided the last, last two weeks, actually, to not do that. Um, I thought about it, and then I thought, no, it's not a good idea. I'm not going to do it. Because I agree, there's some very prominent, well-known pastors who say it is the gospel that saves, not your testimony. And I agree with that. I really do. And I've seen people turn testimony time into just me, 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 me time. And I hesitate. So I, so I have a hesitancy. I have an apprehension about doing this. But the thing is, is that where I, where I disagree with those people that say that it is the gospel, it's not your testimony, I, I completely agree with that. The only place where I would push back is that if I was a, an evangelist who was going from town to town, city to city, I would not be telling my story. But I'm a pastor here, and I've been up here quite a bit lately, and so I'm a face you've been seeing, I'm a voice you've been hearing, I'm a presence that's going to be here for a long time to come. I don't want to be a pastor at Imago Day. I don't want to be a pastor at Mosaic or at Athey Creek or any other church. I want to be a pastor at Door of Hope. I want to be a pastor here with you for years and years and years and years. And so... I know that I'm new, and now all of a sudden it's like, who is this Ian guy? He's up there a lot. So part of my agenda this morning is to just sort of lay myself out for you as, as your pastor. As a pastor of this church, I want you to know me. I want you to know where I come from. I, know, I want you to know a little bit of the backstory, just so that you can, just because I want to be vulnerable with you. I want to be honest. I want to be truthful. I want to be transparent. And the other agenda that I have 
is to preach the gospel, because that's the only reason why I'm here, and is to warn against some, some mistakes that I made early on in my, in my faith that actually, it, it, it started early on and it followed me for years. Beliefs that were wrong, expectations that were wrong, uh, assumptions that were wrong, and I wanna, warn, I wanna warn against those things. For anybody that's listening that's new to the faith or is checking it out, I'd, I want to clean up any of the, any, any muddiness or any, any confusion that there might be because I, I didn't realize how wrong that I was for years and I made a lot of mistakes because of it. And so I just wanna share this with you and, and, and we're gonna get back to, we're gonna get back and focus in on, on those, those verses from Romans 8. But where I'd like to begin just very briefly, so I, I am from Portland, Oregon. I was born and raised right here in Portland, Oregon. My biological father did not stick around long enough to figure out whether I was gonna be his son or daughter. I don't even know the man's name. My biological mother didn't stick around for much longer than that, and at the age of two or three, I think, I was taken into the care of my grandparents, the best thing that's ever happened to me. It was God's grace from an early age. They, good Christian couple, they loved the Lord. They put me in church as an infant. They put me in Christian school as a youngster much to my teacher's chagrin, but that's where I was. And so I, I grew up in the church with, with a good mom and a good dad. And so when I, when you, anytime you hear me refer to my mom and dad, I'm referring to my grandparents, but they are my, my mom and my dad, 100%. And so I, they, they raised me in the church, and, and I would say that as a, as a youngster, as a teenager, late teens, going into my 20s, I had a, I'd like to call it a conviction of tradition. I had grown up in the church. I agreed, I, or I, had, I agreed with the idea, I think that I had some sort of emotional attachment to this idea that we called Jesus. But I wasn't captured by the gospel. The gospel hadn't come alive to me. What I was captured by was autonomy, freedom to do whatever I wanted, anarchy, drugs, alcohol, and girls, like I was all about that as a young man, and that's what I pursued. And where I, I'd like to really pick the story up is when I was 23 years old, because at 23 years old, I had everything that I wanted, and it did not include God. At 23 years old, what I had come up with at that age is I, I just I just found this this quote by Benjamin Franklin this week while I was preparing for this. And I'd, so I'd, I'd never, I've never heard it before, I've never known it before, but it captures perfectly where I was at, at, at 20, 21, 22, 23. And what Benjamin Franklin said was this. He said, he said, write something that's worth reading or do something that's worth writing about. And I was, that's, that is where I was. My 23-year-old self would have been like, yes and amen, Ben Franklin, I agree with that. You've got one life to live, so you better do something as hard and as much like a rascal as you possibly can. And what I wanted to do at 23, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on my dad real quick, because this isn't his fault, because when, when I was growing up in our home, my, my dad was a disciplined, he went to work every day, he had a routine, he provided for the family, and he was very dependable. When he was a young man, he used to, so he used to tell me these stories about when he was younger in his Volkswagen bus in the 60s and 70s, and he would go from town to town to town in that bus. And that was back in the day when you could just stop at, you know, a, uh, 
a cafe and be like, hey, you all need a, you know, need a line cook for the next two weeks, and you'd get a job, make, make enough money to go on to the next town and to the next state and the next city. And there was something about that that I just fell in love with. I wanted to do that. No itinerary, no logic, no, no goal in mind. I just wanted to put my thumb out, get in a ride, and go, or hop on a plane one way to a country I'd never been to, and then just see what happens. Just see what happens. Young, dumb, just ready to roll. That's what I wanted to do. And at 23, I actually had an opportunity that I, that I couldn't pass up. I had some friends I'd gone to high school with or had known around the college age, and they had moved all over the country, and they called me up one day, and they said, hey, I was 23 years old. I was working at a glass shop. I was making good money. I had a trade. I had a skill that people paid me to do. And my friends called me up, and they said, quit your job. Leave Portland. Tell your family goodbye. We're moving to Ireland. I said, yep, and I hung up. That was it. I bought a plane ticket that day. It was 2010. It was, uh, let's say, it was, I think it was May, May 2010. That same year, I moved into a house with some people, actually nine people, in a four-bedroom house with one bathroom on 51st in Killingsworth, and it was just the summer of love, man. I mean, we, we, we grew our own vegetables, we brewed our own beer. I had this trip to Ireland planned, and then that trip started to grow, and my friends called me, and they said, we're gonna come into Oregon, we're gonna pick you up, we're gonna drive from Oregon across the country, we're gonna see all of our friends along the way, we're gonna fly out from the East Coast to Ireland, and get this, Jack, so my best friend at the time, worked in North Carolina for a company that took people on those, ride, those zip line tours through the trees. He was the hiring manager, and he told me, he's like, as soon as you come back from Ireland, come to North Carolina, you got a job guaranteed. So it was like, it was impetuous, but it wasn't even really that impetuous. There was a lot of mystery, and there was a lot to be, to just kind of take as it came, but we also sort of had a plan. So it was perfect. Hop in the car, road trip, see some friends, crack some beers, go to Ireland, crack a whole lot more beers, and then fly back to North Carolina where we got a job guaranteed. And so the summer of 2010, I mean, even till this day, to this day, I have this nostalgia for it because there was so much excitement and anticipation and, and, and waiting for the, for, the, for the ball to drop. You know, we were going to go on this trip. And so the beer tasted better. The berries on Savi Island were, were, were sweeter. The sun was just a little bit warmer, everything was just, a, even the, like the humdrum routine, nine to five, knuckle busting, working at the glass shop, even that was a little bit better because I, I had a way out. I was going somewhere, I was gonna do this thing that I loved, I was gonna do something that was gonna be worth writing about. I got into Jack Kerouac, for those of you who know who he is, he was like my Jesus before Jesus was my Jesus. I got all into the rucksack revolution, man, we were gonna go. And then it got even better, and it got even more intensified because in this, that summer of 2010, I met a little hippie girl, blonde-haired, blue-eyed gal from North Carolina named Lily. And I instantly fell in love with her. I saw, she was, we were at a house party, and I saw her from across the, par, from the driveway, and I was like, I don't know who that is. I'm terrified of her, but I'm gonna go say hi. I fell in love with her. And Somehow, for some reason, she reciprocated those feelings. She was all about Ireland. She was all about the trip. She was all about the road trip. She was all about bohemian, impetuous, ragamuffin, just go do it, figure it out, just get there, and whenever you get there, just keep on going, because we're not going anywhere. We gotta get there, and we don't know where we're going, but we gotta go. That was the whole idea, is to just go and see what happens, and she was 100% on board. It was perfect for people that are young, dumb, and naive about the world. It was perfect. And so that summer was very sweet. And at that point, I had 
I had everything that I wanted. I had the trip lined up. I had the plane ticket bought. I had the road trip planned. I had this, all of a sudden, this, this wonderful woman from North Carolina that thought the world of me and vice versa, and nobody saw that coming, and so I was ready to go. I was on top of the world. I was in perfect health physically. I was in perfect health mentally. I'd been working for a long time. I had a bunch of money in the bank, and I had a trade to fall on in case anything went awry. I could make money. It was the perfect setup. Nothing could have been better. So as the story goes, Lily wasn't able to go to Ireland. So what ended up happening is she, she was from North Carolina, but she had been on a road trip in Portland while she was living in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And so she'd been in Nashville. She was road tripping in Portland. We met. That was the end of the road trip for her. But she went back to make some money. And so we decided that I would go to Ireland. And I, instead, instead of being there for a year or more, I would make it six to eight months. And then she was from North Carolina, so that worked out perfect. We would just meet there. It was all set up. And so I even remember the day. It was August 14th, 2010. I drove her to the airport. And I knew it was part of the plan. I knew it was part of the process. I knew it was part of the greater idea, the greater vision for her to go back to Nashville. But I bawled. I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried the day that she left back to Nashville. And I, I, I left the airport. I dropped her off. I left the airport. I stopped off at the liquor store and I got a half gallon of Jack Daniels because rock and roll. And I met some of my buddies and we polished off most of that bottle. And if I remember correctly, I think we ran up one of the peaks in the gorge with this bottle of Jack Daniels. And so the next morning, Lily's gone. I've got a hangover from the abyss. And I also, I, was, I woke up sick. I knew that I was sick. And at, at this time in my life, for, the, for a few years prior to that, I got strep, it was the weirdest thing. I got strep throat like three or four times, sometimes five times a year, I'd get strep throat. I got strep throat so often that me and my doctors, we, like, we knew the role. I'd call them, we'd show up, I'd get my, my antibiotics, and they were never willing to take, away, take my tonsils out for whatever reason. I was never willing to let them. But this time, I had a trip to get on. And I woke up and I had a sore throat. I knew it was strep. I had felt this a hundred times. I knew it was strep. So I'm sitting in my house. I'm sick. I have a fever. My throat hurts. I've still got a little bit of that bottle left. And that was going to be my Sunday or whatever day it was, you know. And this is the part of the story where I don't, I don't have the language to convey exactly what happened because I think that it was supernatural. I was sitting in my house. I wasn't feeling great. I had this bottle next to me. I was going to go to the, to the clinic the next morning to get my antibiotics. And as I was sitting there, thinking about everything that was happening, Lily was, was gone, but she was coming back. We were going to see her in North Carolina. I was going to go to Ireland. I had to get my stuff ready for the road trip. How much money did I have in the bank account? I was doing all this stuff. And it was, it was in that moment. I think it, was, I think it might have been a miracle. I don't know. That might be too strong. But it was like in that moment, the Lord just took a veil off of my eyes and I suddenly, you've heard me say before that I, I preach a lot about the futility of human beings and how short-lived this life is and how our mortality is the only thing that we have guaranteed is that we're gonna die someday. And that stems from this moment, that moment with the Jack Daniels and the strep throat and I was sitting in my house and all of a sudden my heart just started racing and my, my, my face ran flush, my palms got, got cold and I had this panic attack, just this overwhelming weight of the reality that everybody that you know is going to die. Lily is going to die. The trip to Ireland is going to end. The road trip to get to the East Coast to get to Ireland is going to end. You're going to come back from Ireland. You're going to go to North Carolina. That's going to end. 
everything is one by one going to end. These nine people you live with, one of them is eventually gonna die. That Christmas card you take a picture of every year to send to friends, someone's gonna be missing from the group photo because they're dead. It's inevitable. And the weight of that was so much. I mean, I sprang up out, out of my bed. I, I got up to my feet and I actually paced up and down Killingsworth Street in this panic attack. And what it felt like is, if, you, if you've ever choked on something and you've really choked, cut off your windpipe, it doesn't matter what you're doing. As soon as you begin to choke, everything in your world focuses on, I need to get this thing out of my throat. What I, I, need, I need to stop what I'm doing. God forbid you choke when you're driving, because like, this needs to end right now. And that was the panic I felt. It was that, like, it was that severe instant, this needs to stop now, but th there was nothing actually in my throat. I, don't, I didn't know what was wrong. So I just ran. I ran down Killingsworth Street trying to outrun my feelings, I guess. And I actually cried out to the Lord on Killingsworth Street. I was like, what do you want? I just knew it was him. I knew that the Lord was trying to get my attention. It was such a weight. It was, it was, it was so mind-boggling. It was so, I mean, it, was, it absolutely crushed me in a moment. But I still had strep throat. And so I calmed down after a while and I took a shower and I drank the rest of that Jack Daniels and I was trying to clear my head and I was in this perpetual, st my, my heart rate was elevated, my blood was just circulating like battery acid in my veins and I just went through the motions of trying to get this thing done. So I called the doctor and he's like, dude, if you're gonna go chill in Ireland like a tumbleweed for the next year, you need to get your tonsils taken out immediately because if this happens to you and you're in the backwood of like a, of a potato farm or something, it could kill you. And so I said, okay, all right, so what's that? So it's two weeks on the couch, Haagen-Dazs, and uh, popsicles. No big deal, right? I can do that, and then we're right back to where we started. I can get on my flight. I can get on the road trip. So I have the surgery, and everything goes well. And eight days after the surgery, I, th I, think, what, I think what they called it was a, was a post-op hemorrhage or post-op something, but basically the scabs where they cut, because they cut your tonsils out with, they, they, like, they burn them out, and so it leaves this scab. And I had a picture I was going to show, but I decided not to. <laughs> Just of, it's one of my mom's favorite pictures of me. I'm in the hospital. I've got this big tube in my mouth, and I'm, and I'm hooked up to all these machines. But they, they took my tonsils, and eight days later, I had this post-op hemorrhage thing. And what happened was the scabs in my throat where they had burned, they just, the scabs fell off, as I understand it. And so it was profuse bleeding. I'd actually like to talk to you about this later, Seth. I'd, I have some questions. The... The scabs, as I understand it, just fell off. And so it was 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm asleep, and I start choking on blood, and I spit blood up. And, 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 my, and then my heart, you know, my heart starts elevating, and so then it's even more blood, and it's coming out of my throat. And my parents rushed me to the hospital, and I had to do an emergency recauterization. And that is where all of my tires began to go flat. Because if it was just the one surgery with two weeks of recovery, I would have had time to get on that to get in that car, to get on that flight, to get to Ireland. But because of this second surgery, it put me back another three weeks. And that meant that I was gonna miss my flight. My flight took off during that time. And I remember the, and, 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 and the road trip, the people came, and they actually just, they, have, they just didn't come to Portland because there was no point since they weren't picking me up. And so things began to unravel. Suddenly my, my health is gone. My mental stability is, is, is nowhere to be found at all, and now I've got this, um, this open wound in my throat, and the road trip is gone, and that means I'm gonna miss my flight. Very quickly, everything, everything that I was resting on, everything that I was hoping for and depending on and putting my weight on as a human being, my story that was gonna be written was unraveling very quickly in a matter of just some weeks. 
And so when my flight took off to Ireland, my friends sent me a picture of them on the plane with an empty seat in between them because that was my seat. And I was beyond depressed. I was morbidly depressed. I was so sad. I was so despondent. And so I was on the phone with Lily a lot during this time, and she really was doing all the talking because my throat was so messed up I couldn't talk. She decided to come back to Portland early, so she came back to Portland in October. And I had been able to recover for the most part during the month of September, but I was still so sick. I, I, have, a, I'm a, I have a metabolism like a linebacker, but I'm not a linebacker. And so I went from, I was like 175, 180 pounds, and in that month that I wasn't really eating, I went down to 130, 135. I was gaunt, my cheeks were sunken in, I was sick, my throat still hurt, I was really malnourished. I'd suffered all sorts of muscle atrophy from laying on the couch for a month. And I knew I was really elated and, I, and, and overwhelmed at Lily coming back because it seemed like some semblance of normal was returning. But I knew that we were most likely just going to be a ticking time bomb because when she came to Portland the first time, I was this young and robust, energetic, confident dude that knew where I was going, knew what I wanted to do, and wasn't going to let anybody get in my way. And when she came back in October of that year, I was sick I was malnourished, I was scared out of my mind, I was panic-stricken, full of anxiety, no more trip, no more plan, and actually scared to make another plan. Because at that point in my mind, what I had conjured up was, well, I was gonna go do this thing, and I, I think that the Lord took it away from me because maybe, maybe, God's, maybe God's really real. Maybe Jesus is actually really, really real. Have you ever asked yourself that? Has, it ever, has, the, has the person of Jesus Christ ever gone from like two-dimensional ideas and teachings to like, He's a real person who actually exists in eternity. He came and he died for my sins. What if that's actually real? And I grappled with that, and it drove Lily nuts. She hated that. But what I thought at the time was, he's, he's out to get me. That's what I thought. After my surgery, after the panic attacks, I thought, there, if, if God is real, he's, he's looking to, to mess me up. He just throat punched me, almost literally. And so I was scared, and, I tr like, and she was trying to get me to go on all these different trips. She had all these things planned. She wanted to move to Florida and work on a, a commercial uh, lobster boat. She wanted to work on a Carnival cruise line because she was a jazz singer, and she knew a guy because people in North Carolina know people. She's like, we could get on the boat, I could sing, and you could, you could tend bar. She had all these weird connections, and I couldn't do any of them because I was just too scared. That's what it boiled down to. I was too scared to leave. If this happened the first time, my throat gets all messed up, what happens if I try to leave again? And I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but that's just where I was at that time. And eventually, and it actually happened quite quickly, Lily had to, Lily had to go. She, was, she, she did not sign up to get a job at the pet clinic and live with me in Portland, Oregon. She wanted to go spread her wings. And so she bought a plane ticket. She got an offer in North Carolina for a job uh, that she couldn't turn down. And so she told me, she's like, I'm gonna buy this plane ticket. You can come with me if you want. And I just, I knew that if I pursued some life with her apart from God, that it just wasn't gonna, it was everything that I was feeling. It was gonna be short and temporal and that death was eventually gonna show up and then it would be over. And I wanted to begin a life with the Lord and she didn't want that. And so she got on the plane. December 7th, 2010, she got on the flight and she left, and I never saw her again. And I, I was suffocating on my tears. I was, just, I was walking in circles around the airport, probably scaring people. I was crying so hard. And I got in my, I had a 95 Chevy Astro van that my mom gave me. Thank you. 
And I didn't know what to do. Like I was kind of blacked out, you know? Like I was just so overwhelmed with emotion that I just, I don't even remember doing it, but I drove out of the airport. I drove to my parents' house. I don't even remember ending up there. I guess it was just instinct. But as I was walking up the driveway, it was pouring down rain. It was December 7th. It was early, early December, cold, wet. I was walking up the driveway and I just broke. I just broke. I had been through such emotional torment and, and turmoil and everything had been flipped upside down. In May of that year, everything was right on point. And now in December, everything is gone. And I just cried out to the Lord and I said, I'm, I'm a sinner that needs a savior. I have, I have no life left. The only thing that I have left is the only thing that I wanted to get rid of, which was Portland and the job at this glass cutting place. I was just absolutely defeated. I was so I was so mentally broken and I just, I knew in that moment that I need a savior. I've been building my house on the sand and I need to build my house, whatever it looks like, on the rock. And I put my faith and trust in the, in the Lord Jesus as my savior and as my Lord, believing that he died for my sins, that he raised from the dead and that he gives his righteousness to me as a gift when I put my faith in him. And it was funny, I walked inside the house, I was dripping wet. And my mom was reading in the, in the living room, you know, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, and I, I, <laughs> I walked in. I wasn't going to say this, but I walked in, and, and we look, she, she looks at me, and I look at her, and I said, I think I just became a Christian. And she goes, why are you soaking wet? <laughs> I became a Christian in the driveway, Mom. You wouldn't believe it. It's wet. It's December. It's pouring down rain. And so I really believe that in De December 7, 2010, I became a Christian. I was born again, but I had problems. I had a lot of problems, and I didn't understand that I had problems. I didn't know that I had problems, and my, my problems were sort of multifaceted. It's almost like a hydra. So I had grown up in the church. I knew the lingo. I knew the culture. I, I had gone to Christian school. I had gone to a, Christian, to a Christian church up until the point that I was 18, and I just didn't think I needed any more guidance. Like, I'm a Christian now. The Spirit of God is literally living inside of me. He is here guiding and directing me. I don't need church. I had never even heard the word discipleship. Linking up with an older guy in the faith and being walked through sanctification, another word I had never heard. Abstaining from sin. When have you been saved from sin? Just like, I thought that I knew everything and I literally knew nothing. I knew that Jesus was my Lord and Savior and that he was alive inside of me and so that means, I think essentially what it boiled down to is two things. One is that I don't need to do anything. I don't need to do anything anymore. I, I, don't need to read my, I don't need to read the Bible every day. I could, it'd be good, but it's not necessary. I don't need to pray every day. I could, but I don't need to. It's not necessary. I could stop sinning, but I think that the Lord will lead me into that when the time comes, right? When I'll, I'll stop drinking when the Lord convicts me about it. I'll stop having promiscuous sex when the Lord convicts me about it. I, that's how I really thought. And so I set myself up for failure. And the other thing that I thought is I, I read verses like Romans 8, 28, and I was like, oh, cool, all things work for the good tight. That means that maybe Ireland and Lily got ripped out from underneath of me, but they'll come back somehow. That's what I'll wait for. I'm going to be waiting for that. And I actually was, was hoping and praying that Lily would get saved in North Carolina and she would move back to Portland. That's what I expected to happen. That's how my life was going to work out. And maybe it wasn't going to be Ireland. Maybe it would be some other trip, but I would be able to get to go and sow my wild oats and do exactly what I wanted to do the way that I wanted to do it before Jesus was my Lord and Savior. I really thought that. And because I wasn't reading my Bible, I didn't know any better. Because I wasn't in discipleship, I didn't know any better. Because I was so arrogant as to think I don't need discipleship and I don't need to read the Bible, I stayed in that state of ignorance for years. 
And I did come to Door of Hope, and I started sitting under good teaching, but I was not applying it to my life. I was not paying close enough attention because I just didn't think I had to. I just didn't think that I had to. And what happened was Lily didn't come back. And what happened was Ireland didn't come back. And what happened was that joy, that bubbling over to, to overflowing of, of, of peace and joy that, that happens when you first get saved, that wore away. And then life was just sort of dull, normal, nine to five thing again. But now I'm miserable because I'm convicted by my sin, but I keep waiting for the Lord to tell me to stop doing it. I mean, that's really how I thought. I was like, I'll stop doing these things when you give me the strength to stop doing them, which just stop doing it. Like just stop drinking 17 beers a day. Just stop doing that. And I just didn't, I just didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I was living in sexual sin. I was living in lust and in substance abuse. Even not, even, not even hard drugs, but I was just sinning and sinning and sinning. And I was waiting for the Lord to like give me some sort of boost to get out of that. I wasn't mortifying the flesh. Galatians 5.17 says that it's a war. The, the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit are at war with one another. And I just didn't have that. And I wasn't reading my Bible, so I still didn't know any better. It's so dumb, and I'm, I'm like embarrassed to even admit that, but that is what was going on. And so as things didn't improve in my mind as I thought that they should, I began to grow resentful and cynical and bitter and angry at God. And what I began to think was, well, maybe instead of all of this optimism that I've had in my mind, and maybe what the Lord did was he just ripped Ireland and Lily out from underneath of me just to do it just to show me that he was boss. Okay, touche, you're big and powerful, but I don't like you. If that's the way that you are, I do not like you. If, that, if, if that's the image of who you are, if that, is, if that is your person, great, you're the, biggest, you're the biggest dog in the fight, but I don't like you. And, I began to, and, that, and that thought began to take over, and then I didn't wanna read my Bible, and then I wanted to sin. Then I wanted to rebel, and I started doing that. And I decided in 2015 that, you know what, I'm just going to do this on my own. I'm going to stop waiting for it. I'm going to do what I want to do the way that I should have done ten years, five years ago. So I moved to the East Coast. I packed up my stuff. I quit my job. I moved to the East Coast with some good friends. I made it from, I, I, was, I was staying in Lynchburg, Virginia with some buddies of mine, and then uh, I made my way down to Lima, Peru, and I stayed in Lima, Peru for a while serving beers at a hostel, and it was, it was everything that you could imagine. It was everything that a young, dumb guy could hope for, and it's a good way to get yourself killed, being a bartender in Peru with a big mouth, and I mean, you could just, you could drink yourself to death. There's literally no rules, and I, and I got so chewed up by, by Peru and the way that I was living, I actually began to feel bad about it, and so I came back up to Portland, and I rode my motorcycle across the country because I was just determined to do things the way that I wanted to do them. And I was sick and tired of having rules, and I was sick and tired of this idea of God just like trying to correct me all the time. I, that, like he was just this type A taskmaster with the Bible in one hand, the, the law in one hand, and a whip in the other. Like that's really what I thought. I really believed that. And this rebellion and this anger and this cynicism, it built up more and more and more. And I came to visit my family for Christmas one year. And I was at a bar with some friends and things escalated. And I got myself in trouble and I ended up running from the police. And I wasn't running very fast because things at the bar had escalated. And they caught me. And all of a sudden, I was facing two and a half years in jail and $16,000 in fines. And I was so bitter about it. I was so angry about it. I understood it. I deserved it. I wasn't trying to get out of it. I, my attitude was like, yep, you're right. I, I got caught. 
good, and I'll do my time like a man, and you know what, Lord, I'm actually gonna do this, this is on you. That was my attitude. Because in my mind, God had abandoned me the same way that my biological mother and father had abandoned me. That's how I was conceptualizing it in my brain. And I knew that the way that I conceptualized everything was right. That's what I knew. And so I went into the courtroom for an arraignment and I sat down on the bench with 15, 20 other guys who were also in trouble. And I was ready to do my time. I was hard. I was angry. I was ready to get in a fight, show someone else who's boss. And the DA called my name and I approached the bench. And a long story short, they dropped all of my charges. Every one of them was dropped and they even dropped the $16,000 fine. And I was jaw dropped. I couldn't understand it. I was ready in there to like do business, to go to war with these people, and then the whole thing just fell apart. They said, you're free to go. And I walked out of the courtroom and in a, in a, in, I was dizzy. I was so, uh, I, was, I was physically dizzy. I had no idea what had happened. And a friend of, of mine, someone that you guys may know, Sara, she's a public defender, she was there that day. And I called her that night and I said, can you tell me what happened in that courtroom? What transpired to get me out? She's like, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. That shouldn't have happened. But I think that maybe you should start considering that God just showed you some grace. That Jesus is paying attention to you, that he's not a malevolent jerk, that he's not out to just flatten your tires and take your dreams. I think that you need to start realizing who he actually is, and he's showing you grace right now. And so I started to clean myself up, and I got into AA, and I got into Genesis, and I, 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 got, a, I got a job, again, glass cutting for a different company, and I started to get myself settled into to Portland life, and I started reading my Bible. And I got into community, and I started praying with people. And it wasn't long before I came across this verse. I mean, it was really just a matter of weeks before I read this, and it, it, it jumped out of the, out, off the page. It's in Colossians 3. It's just a couple of verses. Starting in verse 9, it says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have now put on your new self. It's been done. You've put on your new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And those words, being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. And a light bulb went off. I knew that the way that I had been processing everything for the last 10 years or so was right. I knew it was right. And that was the problem, is that I was dead wrong. The image of my creator that I had in my mind was wrong. My belief about who God was was wrong. And it fed my emotions, and my emotions fed my behavior. We talk about this a lot in Genesis process. When they start back up, that's what I'm gonna be doing leading Genesis groups. This was groundbreaking for me. I, I never stopped to think. I wasn't smart enough to question my own thinking. I'm being renewed in knowledge after the image of my creator. I need to know stuff. I need to learn stuff. And you can't do that when you're not in the Bible. This is God's word. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Read the Gospels. Look at Jesus. Memorize his words. That's God's word. That's what God's doing. Jesus said, I do not move independently of the Father. I do not do anything unless the Father tells me. John chapter 5. And I came to find out that the Bible actually has a lot to say about our minds, about the way that we think. In Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 5, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, honorable, just, 
pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Set your mind on these things. Colossians 3 in in verse 2 says that. It says that exactly. It says, set your minds on things that are above. And I was never, ever doing that. I believe that in 2010 I got saved, but I had too much pride and too much ignorance, and I malfunctioned as a believer. I was living in sin because I didn't really understand that it wasn't, it's not really that big of a deal because I'm saved from sin. And it's true, when you're saved, you're saved from hell. You are saved from your sins, but sin will muck up the relationship. You will grieve the Holy Spirit if you continue to live in unrepentant sin. Confession is free and his graces are new every morning. But it doesn't mean that you can take advantage of that grace and continue to just do whatever you want like I was. And I'm not talking about struggling in sin. If, if you have an addiction, if you have a problem, that's a different thing. I, what I'm talking about is what I was doing, which is like, nah, whatever. It's not a big deal. It's just not a big deal. This isn't a big deal. I don't do it that much. I don't do it that hard. I'm not as bad as those people. That's an arrogant heart. And that's defining sanctification on my own terms. I was not surrendered in that way. And I didn't know any better because I wasn't reading the Bible. And the reason why I started in Romans chapter eight is because I think that this gives us a beautiful picture of who, who God really is. I think that this gives us a good image of who God is. This gives us everything that we need right here in this, this, in this short little section. And even as I was preparing for this, for this sermon this week, I was just melted by this. You know, when I got to know the Lord, when I actually started to read the Bible and, and, and meditate on the words of Jesus and get into community and, and get with some dudes for discipleship, I was melted by the Father's love. I mean, that, that experience in court melted me because that's the gospel. You're guilty and you're going to jail. And then no doing of your own, you're free to go. That's, that's more like what God is, is like, but it's even better than that. And we'll, we'll get to that. This, this melts me. Because this, this says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's saying that God is for you. Do you ever just stop there? Do you ever, when you're reading, I know you all, have, we've been going through Romans for a while. You ever get to Romans 8 and go, what, if, if he is for us, Friends, Christians, God is for you. Do, you. do you realize that? Do you know that? Is that the image that you have in your head? Is that what you know? Is that the knowledge that you, that you actually obtain is that God is for you? If you're broken, he's for you. If you're lost, he's for you. If you have failed, he is for you. He cannot reject Christ and you are in Christ. He cannot reject you. He will not reject you. He is for you. He is so for you that there is no price he will not pay. There is no height to which he will not go. There is, there is, there is no limit. He gave, he didn't spare his only son. Did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the thing is is that that's, we, we read things like that, and I, and I think that we have a tendency, I know that we have a tendency to think in the temporal, to think in the terrestrial, to think in the here and the now, today. But remember, so back, going to verse 28, it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work according to their good. And we read that and, and we think, great, yeah, Lily, the trip to Ireland, the job in North Carolina, well, well I'll get that back. This will, somehow all, this will all somehow feed my agenda again. But that's not what it says. 
For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that's a beautiful thing. The, the good that's being worked is not necessarily a good that manifests itself in the physical realm now. It can. It can manifest itself in blessings. And I want to take this time to acknowledge a blessing that manifested in my life because I've been up here for the last 20 minutes talking about another woman. But I got married not to Lily but to Angela. And I love Angela. She is a blessing that did manifest. She was not promised. The Lord never told me that that was going to happen for sure. She never, the Lord never guaranteed me marriage. And I love my wife. I am so glad that Lily and I are not married. I am glad that we didn't go to that trip on that trip to Ireland. I'm glad that we didn't go to North Carolina together. I haven't talked to Lily in years, but I've heard enough through the grapevine that I know that we would not get along. Isn't that always the story? It always works out like that. I love my wife in that obnoxious way that makes eight-year-olds go, ew, gross. They'll like kiss on her face at the grocery store while we're in line. I'm just obnoxious. I love her. I adore her. But those things aren't promised. It's not, that's not exactly what is being described here. What's being described here is that you're going to be conformed to be, in the, to be in the image of his son. You're being conformed into the image of Jesus. And that's eternal. So that even if you don't get the health, wealth, and the prosperity that you were hoping for, or that you were expecting, you become the kind of person who doesn't need health, wealth, and prosperity to be okay, to have joy. This is the joy of the Lord and nobody can take that away. No circumstances can take that away. And Paul says that. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can separate us from that. And he, and he, and he says it. He says it. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Which means that those things could happen in our lives. My family has a sword driven right through the heart of it right now. We're going through a tough time. And what's amazing is that even in the midst of the pain of illness, my family is just overjoyed. My dad's friend came over last week and they had a worship session in the living room and it was just so cool to hear. It was so cool to listen to. And it was awesome that my family has friends that are gonna come over and play the guitar and sing worship songs. That's, that's the church, that's community. Illness cannot take this away. Persecution, tribulation cannot take this away. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded for sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, that is even death itself, cannot separate us from Christ. Nor angels or rulers, that is anything in the spiritual realm, cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Things present or things to come, nothing in all of time can separate you from the love of Christ. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth. Nothing in all of creation, all of space, all of time, physical or spiritual, can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing can do it. What he says over back in verse going back to verse 27 and, and, and so on. Those that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those that he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. If you've been called, if you're a Christian, you're, he uses the past tense of the word glorified because you are never gonna be lost. Your glorification is so guaranteed it might as well have already happened yet. So that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We don't just get let go like I did. When the courts let me go, they just let me go. 
we take on the family name. Jesus becomes our brother. We become his brothers and sisters. We, take, we sit at the family table. We take on the family identity. This is how great his love is. This is how comprehensive his grace is. And this is how secure we are. If you've been called, you are going to be glorified. It doesn't say some who are called get justified and some who get justified get glorified. It says those who. That's all of them. If you've been called, you get justified, declared righteous, and in the end, you're glorified and we're on our way there. Nothing can separate us from that. Nothing in all of space. Nothing in all of time. I've got another minute or so, and so I want to I read this. I didn't read this in the first, the first service because I was running out of time. This is a commentary on Romans by William Newell or Newell or whatever, something like that. Great commentary. I recommend it. He says this. When we fail utterly and are overwhelmed, then this is the time to say we have been accepted in Christ. Only in Christ. Holy in Christ. Our place is unchanged by our failure. Hear that. Our place is unchanged by our failure. I shouldn't have looked up because I lost my spot. We, are, we, are, we may be ashamed, but we are not confounded. We're not, we're not condemned. We might be convicted of sin. Good. Good. Confess his grace is new every morning. Sin just, muddy, just muddies the waters. This, this assurance, this guarantee, this confidence, this joy that we can have, it gets muddied up when we're living in sin. But confession is free, friends. We're always going to be sinners. We're always going to struggle. But we need to confess and grow in sanctification and mortify the flesh. But it does not mean that we're condemned. It does not mean that we've been cast out. Never will that happen. Just now his eyes are on us in Christ as they have ever been. His love is as deep and wonderful as ever, being the love wherewith he loved Christ. We do not resolve to do better for we are weak. We trust the grace of God in Christ and we cast ourselves anew and all the more holy upon his grace alone. We trust him never to forsake us, never to fail us. For he hath loved us in his beloved son and God will never forsake Christ. For his sake will he deal with us now and forever. How hard is it to turn away from its object the love of even a man who is a creature and is but dust. How eternally impossible then that the infinite God should be turned away from his love to those who are in Christ Jesus. It will never happen. This is how good God's love is. This is the image that we need to have of our Lord. He is not malevolent. He is not cold. He is not vindictive. He is not rude. He is a good, patient, loving, gracious, and kind Father. And if you are a believer today, you are safe for all of eternity. Don't let anything else tell you otherwise. Read your Bibles. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Memorize what's in this book. Chew on it. Think about it. Process your life through it. Renew your mind. Not on just something that you make up like I did. Renew your mind on the truth that is infallible and eternally true in the Bible. God loves you. God loves you. If you're, if you're here today or if you're listening online, you need to get here if you're listening online and be with us. But if you're not a, if you're not a Christian, Jesus Christ died so that you wouldn't have to be punished for your sins. Jesus Christ died so that he could give you life and life abundant. You're a sinner and you need to be saved. And that doesn't guarantee safety here. It guarantees security and safety for all of eternity. Because that is how good and comprehensive our God's love is. Amen? Amen. As the band comes up, I'm going to close in prayer. Jesus, thank you for your un 
unwavering, unshakable resolve to go after sinners. Jesus said in Luke 19 that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so if anyone who is a sinner today, anyone who is lost today, you qualify. You qualify. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 8 starts off saying that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and it ends in saying that there is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, your love is comprehensive. It is eternal. It never fails. And I pray that this church body would be one, the individuals here would be individuals who are melted by that, who are moved to worship and to joy. Joy and peace that overcome and even overpower whatever ails them today. That they would look into eternity and know that they will be glorified and that even the things that hurt us cannot separate us from Christ. They can actually only serve us. That's why we're more than conquerors because even our trials and our pains are used to magnify glory in eternity, says 2 Corinthians 4.17. We come to you now, Father, we worship you. Thank you for being available. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.